The talk tonight is called There's Treasure Everywhere. Meaning that there's treasure everywhere for developing wisdom and compassion in this world, whether it's painful, (laughs) pleasant, or neutral. We're uh, really born into this ache of samsara, this kind of ache of uh, incarnation itself. And yet, um, there's treasure everywhere. The spiritual practice is so vast. It's like, uh, if I just wanted to list all the, all the ways that we can practice, it would take too long. You know, so I just wanted to just mention a few things so that your minds could kind of, of course, um, amplify the list yourself. But say, you know, we just came out of this retreat um, having a commitment to be more generous or to really look at where, you know, if, if generosity is a relatively um, easy thing for us to practice, maybe we might take a look at morality. And, you know, just to, just to know that these practices of, like, sila, non-harming, that is just an incredibly rich lifetime practice in itself. You know, so I'm not saying these, this, these words to um, bring about a sense of overwhelm, but just a sense of the vastness of the spiritual practice. You know, and so maybe we're pretty good. We came into this life with pretty good um, ability to be generous or... Um, practice non-harming, but maybe gratitude isn't something that comes easily, so that the practice of gratitude could be something that we work with. Or maybe um, living simply, renunciation. You know, do you see how just, you know, we haven't even gotten to mindfulness, you know? I mean, just, you know, just to kind of get a sense of how this can go, uh, Spiritual friendship. If we've done the loving kindness practice, we get a sense of how probably the most important thing in our spiritual life has been having a spiritual friend. You know, that it's that important, that it's that much of a lifeline. And then when we get that that's important for us, we might be motivated to be that for someone else or more than one other's right speech. I mean, you know, of all the practices that we can do, you can look at the human world and just see how casual we are with our speech and how much practice it takes to pause before we speak. You know, so I wanted, I'm going to touch base on some of these tonight. Um, And then there's the four Brahma Viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy. It's like we haven't really talked that much about empathetic joy, but if you look, if you just... I don't recommend it first thing when you leave the retreat, but when you open a newspaper or turn on the news, if you, you get a sense culturally, you know, what's being emphasized? Joy? 
you know, how much good news, you know, at least if it was like one sixteenth of a newspaper, it would be somewhat more balanced. But again, that bombardment, you know, of a kind of suffering without any kind of um, holding of it for any, with any context. Um, again, you know, that the, the emphasis on appreciating our blessings of cultivating joy, you know, that's, it's just huge. That could be a practice for a very long time. And equanimity. And then, you know, then there's our kind of uh, (laughs) the culture where there's more and more happening at a fast rate. You know, there's such change in our life. The pace of input is so intense. And I think it's really important to see that we don't have to be limited by our desire, for example, to be caretakers or to save the world or to succeed. Or we don't have to be limited by the pace we feel that we have to do these practices. In fact, culturally, you know, we allow very little time for just being. You know, if you look at the amount of doing versus just being, that I would really encourage you, you know, and, and we'll talk about this more tomorrow in ter- when we do question and answers, but really just to carve out some kind of just being time. And I think of this as, you know, if you've ever walked on a beach and, you know, that the wave will crash upon the shore and you walk and, you know, you see that the next steps are taken on this pure, empty beach, and then they're erased, and you keep walking. And really to have a heart like an empty beach, that you've taken enough time to clean out, to start again. Again, that's, that's probably one of the most important parts of our spiritual practice. Making a priority of our spiritual practice. And knowing that most people um, in the West do not have a lot of support for that. That you really, you know, again, when you wake up, you know, when I wake up, usually people aren't, you know, humming a chant of, Michelle, you know, you know, why don't you take a lot of time today for yourself and just being? You know, how many of you have that? You know, it's not like that. <laughs> And then, you know, usually I just left a retreat at the end of March this year, a self-retreat. And I, it's, it's like, please know that they're like two different worlds, being on retreat and coming out of retreat. And you really can't know when you're on the retreat, you know, that it's going to change that dramatically. You know, you can't. You can't. And an example of this, where I was um, staying, you know, it was winter and... Um, you know, I get these incredible bloody noses when the heat is on, and my sister told me about this humidifier I could buy. So I got, I sent away for this humidifier, and it took a lot of water. It took, you know, probably a five-minute, you know, filling up this humidifier every day, and I made it a part of my practice. You know, you have all day. You know, it, it was unthinkable to me that within one day I wouldn't have time to fill up the humidifier. You know, it just was, just within one day I started teaching at the Forest Refuge, and that night, it was like midnight, and I was like, oh, 
the humidifier. <laughs> you know, just just that much change. You know, so please know that it's okay. You know, that <clears throat> usually we have the sense that we want to hold on a bit to the way of life. And why wouldn't we? You know, it would kind of be weird if you didn't enjoy the food and, you know, the, the, the depth, if you love depth and if you love exploration, you know, and a lot of you have been here a long time, you know, and it, it is a big shift. And what changes the most is the um, gradual def- decline of the concentration. You know, if you see that, if you can walk out of here tomorrow and just bow to the concentration, it's not that it'll go like that, but it's just that one doesn't usually have these conditions of such protection and support. And if one can be okay with that, if you can just see that with concentration, there's always the fear of losing it or not having the protection. But mindfulness can come any moment. It's, and it requires only the momentary concentration. And that's why it leads to freedom. And that's why it's so important to cultivate the sense of beginning again, beginning again, and to have really a trust in your own practice that at some point, even if you feel like, whoa, <laughs> it's getting a little intense, it will probably be for the first few days. And then it, you tend to you know, it, we talk about dropping in a retreat. Well, you drop back into the pace of daily life. So taking time for just being, for your spiritual life, is very important. And also, we don't always have a sense of being part of a really long tradition of liberation. And in any way, whatever way that you might feel that, um, wherever you do feel connected to um, spiritual roots, a lot of us in the West have different spiritual roots, but to really get a sense of the support of those roots and making the space to cultivate, cultivate those roots in your daily life really helps deepen the practice in daily life. So if you've seen um, the cartoon Calvin and Hobbes that I mentioned before, Calvin is the little mischievous boy, and um, Hobbes is a stuffed animal that is his imaginary friend. Um, Hobbes is looking at Calvin, who's outside digging a hole. And I'm not sure, but most of you probably did try to dig a hole to the other side of the earth when you were a little kid. So this is the cartoon. Calvin is deep inside this hole. And so Hobbes is looking at him, the stuffed animal, the tiger, is looking at him like, why are you doing this? And he says, why are you digging a hole? And Calvin said, I'm looking for buried treasure. Hobbes says, well, what have you found? And Calvin said, oh, a few dirty rocks, a weird root and some disgusting grubs. And Hobbes says, on your first try. (laughs) And Calvin says, there's treasure everywhere. One of my, um, the first, one of the first teachers I met when I came to IMS to be a cook um, was a woman named Ruth Dennison. And she, um, she was originally from Germany and, um, she can be like an old-style queen, you know. And um, the first 
first retreat I heard her teach, um, she was talking about the practice and what the practice led to. And she sat up there and she said, self-knowledge is no good news, darling. <laughs> it was just such an unusual presentation. You know? it was just, it was, but it was so great. <laughs> and she kept saying, the ego, it's like a leaky canoe. A leaky canoe. Which leads to what? <laughs> so that sense of... It being, you know, self-knowledge, no good news. Thinking of the practice of really finding these buried treasures. You know, it's vast. There's gratitude. There's joy. There's generosity. There's morality. There's all this. And there's also remembering that we're also meant to be uncovering greed, hatred, and delusion. That it's important that you know, most of us will keep thinking it should disappear as we go along. But in actual fact, we're meant to be opening up to deeper and deeper roots of it so that the superficial suffering will start to disappear. Yeah. But if you're growing in the practice, you'll be finding these buried treasures. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's treasures everywhere. You might, you know, be at waiting for an elevator. And you know when you're waiting for an elevator and all these people are standing there? And it's almost like no one will look at each other. We're looking up, we're looking down. And just in that moment, we can remember to, do, to be mindful or to do some compassion practice. It's like we can do the practice anywhere. When my dad was in the hospital for two months and I was commuting um, from IMS... Um, When I would go to enter the hospital, I treated it like um, a meditation center. And I would bow when I would go into the hospital. And I treated my father's room as the meditation hall. And it was really powerful to just kind of be able to make that shift. You know, so part of understanding that the spiritual practice is vast is really starting to become a sacred space yourself and to you know to really look at the conditions of how we created a sacred space here and realize that we can create that sacred space anywhere and from learning how to do that you really start to see that you not only take refuge but you become the refuge for other beings all from understanding what are the conditions for creating sacred space. And so then the, um, the meditation center is everywhere. And what we're doing is we're working with what comes up in the heart and mind everywhere. So there's, you know, everywhere is a good place to practice. That's what I mean by there's treasure everywhere. I find that um, the more I really see the journey of my life and see how, um, in some ways, a lot of our generation weren't eldered, um, how important it is to elder and mentor people, that, that it's really a way to start trying to heal our culture and the planet. And 
when we do a loving kindness practice, I think it's really again important, like I just said at the beginning of the talk, to consider what the benefactor category means. Even if you put a dear friend into that category, that would mean that the dear friend was is like a benefactor. And the Buddha taught that there are two rare and precious human beings in this world. And I think it's one of his most important teachings. He said that there's one rare and special type of human being who shows kindness. And the other rare and special type of human being is one who receives that kindness with gratitude. So someone who does this for us is really a spiritual lifeline. They're, it's like a midwife. You know, they give birth, they help give birth to our deepest spiritual values. And I think that um, it's important to realize how much we need our spiritual friends. And we need to be seen, we need to be understood, we need to be valued. And we also have so much to give. You know, so we equally not only need to be seen and understood and valued in this way, but we also need to do that for others. Because look, listen to the teaching. There are two types of rare and special human beings. One who shows kindness, one who receives it and is grateful. It's reciprocal. And the more we understand this, the more we really want to do this for people and other beings because it really is what makes life meaningful but also changes it from a desert to an oasis. Often, you know, these things are very simple. You know, it doesn't mean that we make a 20-year commitment necessarily to some project. It could be that. But sometimes it's just smiling at somebody who's stressed out behind a counter. Sometimes it's leaving a bigger tip to somebody who is really not such a good waitress, but you know they're having a really bad day. And the tendency is to not want to tip them at all, but maybe you over-tip them. You know, they're, they're just, they can be little things, like you're on a bus and you, you, know, you might sit next to somebody that you don't want to sit next to because you know, you know that there's a little bit of a stretch that might be required and that that's a good thing to do. Helen Keller um, said that friendship is seen through the heart, not the eyes. You know, so I think that this is a real important development of the heart. One of my um, first spiritual friends uh, was a Quaker and a naturalist and a professor of mine. And he was really the first being who I felt really saw me and understood, you know, kind of mirrored my spiritual yearnings and, and really understood how weirdly different <laughs> I approached life. Like when I went <laughs> to uh, school, I decided I took a vow not to type my papers, for example. And... Um, You know, that was different. And he loved it. No one else seemed to appreciate it (laughs) university. But, you know, he really loved it, and he encouraged me to make drawings and, you know, just kind of to bring out 
the type of person I was. And there's a lot that I could say about him. He actually um, was a student of the professor, uh, Louis Agisi, that uh, Joseph mentioned in his first talk, you know, describing um, working with that fish. Well, he studied with that man, and one of his uh, instructions for us uh, was to pick a spot uh, for a whole year and to pick one plant to be with, to watch this plant every day, to be with this plant for a whole year. And, you know, I picked this very obscure plant in a swamp called uh, Mirica Gale, Sweet Gale, and it was an unforgettable connection, experience. And when I left um, his mentorship, um, I got a little sketchbook from him, and there was a little uh, entry that said, I flow through you to others and I dance along the way. And one of the things that I was, I guess it was the most important thing that I learned from him was that um, he really took joy in his students going beyond him. You could see that he really wanted you to know more than him, to to have more wisdom, to have more compassion. It was like... um, there wasn't any sense of him feeling um, diminished by that. And that, that I think, again, that's so important for us to see in other human beings. Is, it's just that sense of, please, do better than me. I was reading a magazine and an airplane recently, and um, most of us know the actor Johnny Depp, and it was a little article about him, and uh, it said that, he said that his first selfless moment in his life, first selfless moment was when his daughter was born. You know, and I thought that was just, in some ways, it's kind of amazing, you know, that it's his first selfless moment from one perspective, but from another perspective, it's like we all know what that's like to have a benefactor really be a newborn or a child. And culturally, this is very, very strong, that it's really the, the children that elder uh, and how important that connection is. There's treasure everywhere, even in a People magazine on the airplane. (laughs) When I um, uh, stayed an extra day at the end of the women's retreat here at Spirit Rock this uh, last spring, a friend of mine uh, took me up to this lake up above, I guess it's Fairfax. (laughs) And um, we, we spent a long time there. And there was um, a bench, and we both really were exhausted, and she's the type of friend that we we know when we need to just sit on a bench, not beside each other, (laughs) but just to take the time to be in solitude together. So she went to one bench, and I went to the other bench, and it was just so great. You know, this is possible for us to be out with friends and to actually also have quiet time. You have together time, 
and alone time. That's a great gift. That's a spiritual friend um, to make that space. And when we were sitting there, um, I kind of took a nap, and then I sat, and then I looked over across the cove, and there was this man doing a very unusual thing. And for hours, we were watching him. I didn't know my friend was watching him too. But, and all I could see him doing, he had this plastically-looking scoop that he must have cut out of like a big milk carton. And he'd go down to the lake and scoop up water and then walk into the woods with it. And then he'd come down and scoop up water. And, you know, hours hours of it and I kept I just you know how you try to figure something out (laughs) but it's really beyond any comprehension and I had all kinds of ideas about what kind of work he did and I thought he was a park ranger or you know a botanist or you know I was trying to understand what he was doing and finally we decided to get up and walk and I said well let's go this way and let's see what he's doing Um, and so we went up to him and started talking with him and I was trying to fish for well did he know what what plants he was watering he was watering these plants and it was very dry and I you know what are we what are you doing and he said I'm just um I'm watering the really dry plants so that um, their seedlings will make it for next year um, and I was, you know, again, trying to figure out, well, is he paid for this? Is he, you know, is he a volunteer for the Sierra Club? You know, what is he doing? And he wasn't. He actually had no um, botany experience. He had, it's just, he didn't, he told me, he didn't even know the names of the plants. And just the purity, there was such a purity in his heart. And it was so simple and so inspiring. And you could see, like, that he really, this is how he took time to just be. You know, it might not be that we sit for a couple hours, but this was his meditation. Um, And there was really a deep feeling with this being. And just such a pure, pure heart. It was very inspiring. When we do the actual practice of loving-kindness, having someone we can do that's easy, even if it's a stuffed animal, even if it's a memory of a deer, even if it's a memory from five years old of some time in nature, it could be that we have a benefactor that's a lake. You know, anything that you feel you know, where your heart can open is, is where we start with this, and it's, it's a spiritual friend. When I've been um, coming in here in the afternoon to do the metta practice with you, I think you've heard me emphasize quite a bit how important it is to heal the disconnect from ourselves and how the loving-kindness really helps us um, pick up a lot of the pieces of ourselves that we've split off from. I think it's really important. So if you can make the compassion practice or the loving-kindness practice part of your daily practice, and especially for those of you who have been 
here who did the metta retreat at first, um, you don't have to go out here and not weave this practice into your life, all, all of us. And for some people that means doing 10 or 15 minutes before each daily sitting, or it could be that we do the whole sitting of metta, and then the next sitting may be mindfulness. But it helps to have, I think, for most people, some, some routine of it. But please don't let this go now that, now that you've learned it. Some people might just do a few minutes of it. When, um, it's taken me a long time to figure this out, but my mother drank two-fifths of whiskey a day when I was in the womb, and I was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. And it, it's, um, it's a level of disconnect that for most people is sort of unimaginable to heal. And I can say that uh, it's been really understanding that we have both the mother cow and the baby calf in us, that has helped heal that for me. So really work with receiving the loving kindness from the mother cow. And I think really some people who kind of are really, some people are sort of born adult or really have the grown-up, right, but they don't really have the kid. And some people really have the kid, but they don't have the grown-up. Everyone's out of balance. <laughs> you know, so it, it just takes that sort of honest self-assessment and seeing that, they, that they're both important in us to heal the disconnect. Um, and again, it can be just a few minutes a day. It can, be through the, um, it can be through empathetic joy rather than metta. It can be through compassion or equanimity. It doesn't have to just be through the metta. In terms of um, how long it seemed like it took me to work with that process, I wanted to offer a quotation from Albert Einstein. Um, And this is a description of his own search to understand the fundamental laws of the universe. He said, The years of anxious searching in the dark with their intense longing their alternations of confidence and exhaustion and final emergence into the light. Does that sound familiar? The years of anxious searching in the dark with, the, with their intense longing and their alternations of confidence and exhaustion, final emergence into light. And mostly, I think, we do that over and over. It's not that we just do that once. There's some traditions where they talk about uh, one dark night of the soul. And at a certain point in my practice, I thought that was a bit of a bad joke. You know, it's like, just one? (laughs) You know, who was that? So if you have that sense that this process happens over and over again, that's really true. You know, we know that it takes, to truly be in the present moment takes great courage. Coming to understand um, 
how and why we suffer. And knowing that the moments of true contentment are when um, the moments when we aren't identified with our experience. When we really get that I am not my body, I am not my emotions, I am not my thoughts. You know, this is, this is the most important um, part of the practice. And we ref- I referred to this the other um, morning when we talked about intention. But I just wanted to mention this again, that um, it's really hatred that hates. It's not a you or a me or an I that hates. It's just moments of hatred that hates. It's just moments of aversion that are aversive. It's just moments of fear. It's fear that fears. It's not you that fears or I that fears. And that's the more we understand that, the more we're less vulnerable to other people's aversion, other people's fear, other people's greed, and our own. And then on the other hand, it's wisdom that is wise. It's love that is loving. It is, it's compassion that's compassionate. And understanding that also really helps us to not take personally the whole thing, uh, which leads to ultimately less and less conceit. One of the most important teachings, again, of the Buddha is on conceit. And he taught that um, feeling less than, equal to, or better than are all aspects of conceit. So culturally, we tend to think of conceit as being better than, but it's quite comprehensive to get that worthlessness is considered to be a kind of conceit, feeling equal, feeling better than. And when we start to see that, okay, it's like none of that is personal. It's only when we compare a separate self with a separate self that we feel less than or equal to or better than. And the Buddha called that madness because that comparison is based on (laughs) delusion. So being grateful to see the hatred or being grateful to be able to see the desire being grateful to be able to see the delusion, the fear, the loneliness. This is so important because that's the only way we get to see that it isn't referring back to a separate self. It's the only way we purify enough to gain the wisdom and the compassion. When my great-niece Brenna was four years old, I went um, into the house with her and she wanted to show me the movie uh, Peter Pan. And she had it on, and she was quite distracted. And she was, we were kind of playing. And then Tinkerbell came on. And she just, you know, of course, that, like, just her whole body gets all delighted. And she ran up to the TV screen, and she pointed to Tinkerbell, and Peter Pan came on. And she looked at Tinkerbell, and she looked at me, and she said, and Tinkerbell's flirting with Peter Pan, right? Really flirting. And she looked at Tinkerbell, uh, Tinkerbell pointed Peter Pan, and she went, I want that. I want more and more and more of that. <laughs> and I was like, uh-oh, baby. 
<laughs> you got a hard life coming. <laughs> I was like, get over it, Brenna, like now before it's too late. <laughs> so transparent, you know, it's just like so painful and so delightful. In a way. I mean, she was just so, you know, ecstatic, and it was like, well, this could be something I have to suffer through. <laughs> again and again and again. And so it's desire that desires. It's not us. It's when we identify with it that it becomes a problem. It's not a problem if we receive the experience of wanting that's why I emphasize receiving. You can't not cling to something if you don't connect to it first. So you connect with the desire, you receive it, and just like a sound comes and goes by itself, and a breath comes and goes by itself, desire comes and goes by itself. No problemo. And so it's great when we can have that level of acceptance and um, non-identification. But what happens when we're really identified and we try everything we've learned and nothing works? You've probably had that experience this retreat, right? And so it's really important to get that sense that it's okay to be lost, that it's okay to be identified, and to go easy. And sometimes it means that we distract ourselves. You know, it's really important to have a cup of tea, maybe take a bath, you know, just whatever it is. I know that when I first come out of retreat, usually I'm very busy. And if, I, if push comes to shove and I'm working somewhere and I need to, I'll just go into a public bathroom. And, you know, this just to take a few breaths. You know, I love stoplights. I love red lights now. <laughs> Actually, when Sayada Upandita, one time I was taking him around Honolulu when he came to teach. Um, and this is, you know, he's from Burma. He's been a monk since he was very young. Um, and he was watching, he just watching how we drive in traffic. And this was, you know, through Waikiki. We were taking him through Waikiki. And he just, you know, after a while he said, Americans don't like the color red. (laughs) Americans like the color green. And he was just observing what we do at traffic lights. (laughs) It's it's really always interesting to see us from another cultural view. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, yellow, we go faster. (laughs) And red, oh, you know, if you're in a hurry... And I have had that impatience with red lights. And finally, I started to see, oh, this is a great time to practice, to have these few moments. So anywhere that you can have these pauses in, at work, at home, are really important. When we're able to receive this is what will lead to gratitude. And um, it really helps us work with the um, smoldering, hidden or not so hidden worthlessness or lack of goodness that we can feel at times. You know, so, so the path of, of receiving 
tends to lead us to joy, whether, again, it's pleasure or, or pain. And often, um, when we start to see that the receiving in this practice helps us to overcome the pleasure-pain syndrome, uh, then we get a sense of what the joy means in this practice, joyful interest. And being interested in life, being interested in the truth, that's what brings the gratitude. You know, and of course, with each of these things I'm touching on, there's so much more I could say about it. Getting a sense of doing that with something easy for you, that's what the primary anchor is meant to be. So, so if, you, if the breath is working for you as an anchor, um, what, again, we're meant to do with that is understand that if we can see the birth, life, and death of a breath, the birth, life, death of a sound, then we tend to maybe, we'll start to see that loneliness will also have a birth, life, and death, or worthlessness, or fear. You start to get a sense of trusting, you know, that the, the wisdom of knowing things are imper- impermanent. Also that, you know, that takes uh, patience to deepen our understanding with that, but it's possible. Last year, I had an experience of um, having maybe two days before I had to come teach the part of the three-month retreat in New England in the fall. And I went, I had had a series of dreams over my life of going to this certain town that I'd never been to. And I never really listened to the dream, never trusted it. And I finally did. And it was very interesting to just let myself kind of drive down to Cape Cod and with this voice going, this is ridiculous. You don't even know where you're going. You know, this is, you know, why don't you go somewhere where you know where you're going? You only have two days. And you know how all that doubt will happen. But I finally went to this place and looked around for a place to stay. And I just kind of followed my intuition and took this little boat out, little motorboat out to the edge of the end of the Cape. Uh, And it turned out that this is where this big seal colony lived. Um, But I didn't know that. So I was let off at this place early in the morning. And (laughs) I just kind of sat down at this kind of spit at the very end. It was the very end of the elbow of the cape. And I was just kind of sitting there. And then I, like, was tired. So I laid down. And every once in a while I could hear a... (laughs) like a loud breath, and I smelled this kind of weird smell, but I didn't think about it, you know, and I just was just, I just loved, you know, how you just can fall asleep out there. And then I didn't realize that the tide was coming up, um, and I was on this little, little thing. (laughs) And I woke up, and I had, you know, rolled over and laid down, kind of like a seal. I was just like all laid down on my stomach, and I looked up, like, I opened my eyes. I didn't move. And there was probably 500 seals to my right and 500 seals to my left. I mean, it was just, I was in the colony. <laughs> and it was really surprising. You know, I just, <laughs> I had no idea they had made such a comeback since I was a kid. I mean, I, mean, I was just like, whoa. And just, 
my heart was just thumping, um, and it really smelled. I mean, it was just really smelled. <laughs> but then I just thought, wow, this is just, you know, a gift. Like, what a gift. And I started just, like, if I mo- if I, I started to get really uncomfortable, but if I even got up a little bit, they'd start to be very nervous. You know, because we've hunted them and they almost went extinct. We just clubbed them to death so many times. So they have this terror of us. But they totally accepted me at their level. (laughs) You know, know, it was fascinating. And I, you know, it was just... Being with them was probably one of the most warm, cozy experiences of my life. It was just like... um, the, the level of just the way they belong to each other and their connection with each other and the way they take care of each other. Just watching, I think I, I laid there for six hours and it was very difficult. I was really glad I'd meditated for so long, you know, because it wasn't that hard. But it was, it was really interesting. And I've read a lot about the bully, the bully bulls and... Um, when there was a, a, a male seal that was starting to kind of attack the other seals, uh, I, I had had all these ideas about it. But in this, at least not in breeding season, it wasn't breeding season. But every seal around the seal that was starting to bite and be obnoxious and bullish, all the seals around that seal would take care of it. It was like they, and then you'd see it sort of erupt somewhere, a little, a, a little bully eruption, and all the seals would sort of let them bite them a little bit. Just every every seal would sort of. It was like a dance, but it was like they were all one being in a way, connected. And then it would in, erupt here, and it was just all. Everybody took responsibility for the bullies. Every every seal. That was one thing that was quite intriguing to to be with. And the other thing that I noticed is that some seals would take naps and other seals would watch guard. And then when they got, you know, tired of watching guard, they'd wake up. (laughs) They'd wake up the the ones that were sleeping. And then they, they took, they watched. And again, it was just like this really beautiful community. Um... And just, I, I feel like I learned so much from that, and it was such a wonderful gift. Which leads into um, morality, uh, the precepts. And I'd like to read you um, the five precepts that we came up with for the young adult retreat um, originally the teenage retreat that I taught for 15 years at IMS. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment to protect life. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment to only take what is offered to me. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment to protect relationships and be celibate during this retreat. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment to speak the truth. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the commitment not to harm myself or others with alcohol or drugs.
This is part of creating sacred space. And if you just get a feeling of that this has been a huge foundation for us at this retreat, it's very invisible, but this is what allows us to go deep inside. This is what gives us the gift of fearlessness. When we're afraid because of um, the possibility of harm, we don't relax. And the, the mind will not deepen unless it's relaxed. And I think that we often, at the end of a retreat, we often lose touch with how utterly unusual it is for a group of people to commit to non-harming out of the understanding of how interconnected we are. And how, just again, it's a luxury. If you look at, most people on this planet are just struggling to survive. You know, it's just like, it is so hard, so utterly hard, so unimaginable, the poverty, the oppression, you know, and it's just like, to really get um, the gift of what we have, and then to really have that motivation to try to get that this is a way of life. This commitment to non-harming is, is really, again, it's not like it's this little thing that we do to get to enlightenment. <laughs> the, the, this, the way of life of this is awakening. It's like that's, it's the uh, fulfillment of awakening to be able to do that. So the, the commitment to non-harming is really the commitment to protecting all of life. And it, it really means that we get that we are that interconnected and that we have that level of respect. And you can see how much dignity it brings us to take that kind of care. Ultimately, being able to express these precepts in action um, to really understand the level of respect and dignity it brings us is, is just, again, it's so fundamental. One of the ways that can be the most difficult for us humans, I think, in terms of speech is when there's conflict. And one thing that has been helpful for me, but it's been an area of a lot of work and continues to be, is when there's conflict, to, to have this commitment to try to understand the suffering of the other person or the other group. And, and I look at myself, and over and over, when, when there's conflict, it's like I so much want to be understood. I want the person or the, you know, to understand my suffering. And it's hard to, when, when the other person really doesn't you know, make that connection, to, to, be the, to be the one who tries to do that, to really understand the suffering of the other person. And this is, this is one thing that I think is really connected to non-harming and this, this commitment to, to sila. And just on a light note, in relationship to this, when we um, were trying to set up the retreat for the um, mentoring retreat on the vineyard that I described um, 
earlier this week, I had this idea that I wanted to try to do all the decisions by consensus. And the, the <laughs> there were six of us who uh, worked for three days to, to open the retreat. And these other people had never done this before. Uh, but I wanted them to kind of, you know, struggle and, and fight some of the things out. And um, it was a really big decision where we were going to put the meditation hall. Really big. And it, it, you know, we just discussed it, and I was just getting so sick of it. And we finally made a decision to sit in each place. We had three places that it might be. But that we decided to, we committed to 45 minutes sitting in each place. Instead, you know, and that's a lot of time and a lot of effort. So the first place that three people wanted to have the hall in the porch. And this, this was May. It's cold down there. Three of us felt, we are, three of us were just absolutely against it. I mean, we were dead set against it. It was going to be too cold. We didn't want to do it. And the other three were just dead set for it. Just like, it'll be so wonderful. The sounds, you know, it'll be out in nature. What are we doing down in the vineyard if we're not going to be, you know, receiving nature? And we were bickering back and forth. <laughs> so we went out there and we were sitting it was really cold, you know. <laughs> I, myself, did not want to be on the porch, and I love nature, but I didn't want to be cold. So we're sitting there, and then I noticed um, one, of, one of the people was Usumana, this monk um, that lived with me as a kid when he was 15. He, he came to visit the other night. He was one of the monks in the back. He's the one I've talked about translating for us in Burma. And he was really into the porch. And so he's sitting there, and he was so happy. Like, I think he felt like that this was going to just prove it. You know, he was really going to win. You know, there was just this kind of arrogant kind of triumph in his posture. (laughs) 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 And I was like... (laughs) (laughs) And so we're sitting there, and then (laughs) I noticed this tick walking up his arm. (laughs) And there's a lot of Lyme disease down there. And I could see him sort of, it was just like, you know, that moment of like, oh no, (laughs) tick. He finally had to actually get up and put the tick outside. And I was like, you know, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) But this was only 10 minutes into the sitting, yeah. And so <laughs> it was like the, the contest was not over. And the battle, the battle had not been won. So he sat down again. And the birds were singing. And I started to like it. You know, and it was like, it was unbelievable. By the end of the sitting, I wanted to be there. I completely changed. I was just dead set for the porch, you know. And so we rang the bell. And all three, all three people who had wanted the porch didn't want to be in there. <laughs> and the three of us that didn't want to be in there really wanted to be there. And it was just, how can we be so fickle? I mean, it was just like unbelievable. And it was such a teaching. So then we headed up to the next place. And the same thing happened. Like we, and it, like we went to all three places. And we just kept changing our minds, you know, and it was just amazing. It was just such an added dimension to the difficulties with consensus anyway. I mean, it was just like, but it became very clear. 
And that whole retreat, I just, I hadn't worked that much with consensus, but it was just like every single time we'd go through, you know, it took time, but it never was um, an issue at the end. It was always clear, oh, this is what we're going to do, and this is what we're going to do. And we had a three-day discussion group at the end with really difficult decisions to make. And by that time, you know, some of us (laughs) were so committed to it uh, that, again, it was just like, oh, this is interesting. A lot of the pain, a lot of the difficulty comes out, but then the decision is easy because it's so clear. I'd like to um, end with a poem by Hafiz. I don't know if you know him, but he was a great Sufi master, really. And it's from a book called I Heard God Laughing. And it's called Tripping Over Joy. And it's about surrender. What is the difference... This is called surrender. (laughs) Tripping over joy. What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I am afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. Let's sit for a moment. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, may we have the intention and commitment to protect all of life and to develop as much wisdom and compassion as we can.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.